Well, we finished up with Acts last week. Who was here for that? Amen. So everybody who was here last week gets 50 bucks. And we're going to meet at the Daily Planet. The rest of the people have to stay and run suicides. Well, this, tonight we're going to launch a new journey here. Um, it's interesting, I was going through my notes of when I preached certain things, and I was about to, I was about to launch into a three-book series that I didn't remember preaching, but I looked back six years ago and I did it. And um, I just kept praying, and I felt the Lord would have us to go to Hebrews. So uh, get to Hebrews. This is the book in the Bible that proves men are supposed to make the coffee at the house. Don't tell your wife, make me a cup of coffee. Hebrews. That's right, not Hebrews. My wife's not a coffee drinker, but she can make a good cup of coffee. And I barely taste the poison in it. So. <laughs> well, we're in Hebrews, and uh, I'm going to go through chapter 1 um, of Hebrews in just a minute here. But I want to thank the Lord for the word. Um, you know, there's so many treasures in Scripture here. It's just so amazing how you can read through and study and even preach through, and then there's so much more. It's a fresh and alive. I go back and look at notes sometimes, and uh, God shows us new things all the time. I say, well, how does that happen? Because the Word is alive, amen. And so, Father, we just thank you tonight that your Word is alive and that it's sharp and it's quick and it cuts to the heart of every issue in our lives. Father, I pray tonight that as we study through this book and we understand why it was put together, the way it was put together, and who it's directed to. Lord, I'm just praying, Lord, that we would get a fresh insight and a fresh understanding to who you are and what you mean to us. And Father, this book will reveal Jesus in such a unique way because of who it's written to. So God, open our eyes and let us catch a new glimpse of our Savior. I ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, Hebrews was most probably written by the Apostle Paul. And I say that because most scholars agree that it was Paul and his linguistic style, his, uh, the way he constructs arguments. Remember, Paul was not just some you know, kind of country bumpkin. He was a, a very skilled, incredible, um, uh, you know, uh, he was taught the word by Gamaliel and, and you know, just had just an incredible understanding of the Old Testament. So we see a lot of Paul's style in here, a lot of his structure. Most scholars agree it is Paul, but it's not named who is written. There's a lot of debate about it. I kind of find it interesting that people would get, you know, all, you know, wound up about who wrote it. It's in the Bible. It's God's word. And, uh, you know, we don't have to know who wrote every book, I guess. And so God leaves a little mystery here, but most probably Paul. Many times I'll say, you know, as Paul's writings here kind of betray that it was probably him, but it could have been someone under him who, uh, you know, sat under him. And there's a couple of uh, different ideas about who wrote it, but I'm not going to get into that tonight. So we don't know who wrote it, but we think it's Paul. It was written in such a way as to assist Jewish converts to Christianity. That's why it took a master scholar and someone who understand the intricacies of the Old Testament to unravel some of these doctrines and make it understandable to a Jewish audience. Now realize, the multitude of the early church was 
converted Jews. Why? Because they brought the gospel to the Jews first. Uh, and the, he preached in the synagogues, Paul did, until they finally threw him out. And as we saw in Acts, he said, uh, I'm done arguing with you guys. I'm what? I'm going to the Gentiles. But in the early church, the, most of the converts were Jews. And so it was very important to Paul and to the rest of the apostles that their countrymen uh, heard the gospel and got a chance to receive it. Now, uh, it, it's written to assist them. What? That they would, this conversion from Judaism and Old Testament legalism into a grace covenant was a big jump. It would be like, you know, I mean, I almost hate to do this, but it would be like, you know, the, the scripture says that we cannot receive another gospel. If an angel brings it to us, we're to reject it. So the gospel is the gospel. It's never going to change. But it's as if someone came in and preached another gospel to us and said, this is now the gospel. Would, would you understand that we would be resistant to that? Especially if for thousands of years we did it another way and God designed the other way. It wasn't man's design. The Old Testament law covenant, the Mosaic covenant, the Abrahamic covenant, that's all God. But God makes the shift here. And now they have to make the shift and they're having a hard time. And so it's to assist them to uh, become strong Christians with a uh, foundation in the new covenant. It's to strengthen the faith of the Jewish person. And it's to show, he, Hebrews shows the superiority of Christ in every way. If you don't remember anything else I say from this introduction, it's that Hebrews is going to show the superiority of Christ. See, the, the Jewish reader, the Jewish thinker needed to understand why they would now receive Jesus as Messiah. And he, he fulfills all the Old Testament prophecies. He does everything that the Messiah had to do, yet there's these blinders that they can't make the connection. And Paul is trying to get them to see the superiority of Christ. You know what we need? We need Jesus. Amen. You know what we need besides Jesus? nothing we need more of jesus it's jesus plus jesus plus jesus amen it's not like well i got this jesus thing down now let me let me try works or let me try you know humanism or let me try secularism it's jesus and that's why hebrews is going to take the time to establish the superiority of christ in every way you can actually outline the book as follows chapter one verses one through three the superiority of the son over the prophets. Chapter 1-4 to 2-18, the superiority of the Son over angels. He just keeps going with this superiority theme. Chapter 3 uh, through chapter 4-13, the superiority of the Son over the Mosaic Covenant. Then moves into chapter 4 and 5, the superiority of the Son over the Aaronic priesthood. So he's going to take the time to show Jesus is more than the prophets. He's more than the angels. He's more than the Mosaic Covenant. He's more than the Aaronic Covenant. Then in chapter 5 and 6, he shows the superiority superiority of Jews who receive Messiah to the ones who are unbelieving. Chapter 6 and 7, the superiority of the son over Abraham and the Melchizedek priesthood. So we're going to look at that. Uh, chapter 8 through 10, the superiority of the son over the old covenantal system. The Jews had a lot of tradition. And, and, and Paul, 
as I'm going to say, uh, showing them that Jesus is superior their, to their tradition than chapter 10 through 13, the superiority uh, of the Son over all believers. So you're going to see this theme woven through there. If you pay attention, you'll see how it's all about showing that Christ is sufficient. He's superior. He is the replacement for all of these things, all of these traditions, all of these orders, and, and you need Jesus plus nothing. You got it? Hebrew strongly encourages the Jewish converts to be evangelical and to resist the temptation to go back to Judaism. You're going to see that theme woven through the book. He wants converts to make converts. He wants believers to be evangelical. Now, this is in the Jewish sense here. For the Jewish people to reach their own, they have a distinct advantage in understanding the cultures and customs. But you and I need to be evangelical as well. Three and a half amens. You see, if you work with people and they don't know you're a Christian, you're blowing it. If you rub shoulders with people every day in your neighborhood and they don't even know that you're a Christ follower, you're blowing it. And I think about this. You know, I, I rub shoulders with a lot of people and I want them to know that I love Jesus. And I want them to see him in me so that they can be saved. It's amazing to me how many Christians will just go about their business as if they didn't have a great commission to fill. And I'll, I'll get with people and I'll say, oh, that, that, that was your friend? Yeah, that, oh, he's a good guy. You know, you know what about you know, bringing him to church? Bringing him? Well, you know, it, it's not even on the radar. We've got to change that. You and I are salt and light. You and I are in this world, but not of it. You and I are of a different kingdom, and we need to be snatching souls out of the darkness. So understand, uh, they were to be evangelical. We're to be evangelical. Uh, Hebrews compares and contrasts the Old Testament covenant and the New Covenant, uh, and the writer addresses the Old Testament with precision and authority. And it's all for the Jewish reader to understand that Christ is superior and he's all that they need. They can leave behind the old tradition and they can move in to the superiority of Christ. So Hebrews 1 uh, starts with talking about the superiority of Christ over the prophets and the angels. It starts by affirming the Old Testament prophets in that God spoke to his people through them. Look what it says. God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers in the prophets, in many portions and in many ways, in the last days he spoke to us in his son, whom he appointed heir of all things. Through him also he made the world. So there's a lot in there. The prophets are affirmed. And, and the, the fact that God spoke through the prophets, but there was a shift that was made uh, somewhere where God spoke through the prophets, but now he speaks through his son, through uh, the New Testament to us. Now, the Old Testament prophets are extremely important to the Jewish mindset and they need to know that these prophecies that the prophets gave about messiah are fulfilled in anyone who claims to be messiah now we know jesus is the messiah because we didn't have all that baggage of old testament stuff we just met jesus and been like man this guy's the savior and we sign up and we take it but they got a whole bunch of reservations here now the old testament prophets 
are important, and they are still incredibly important to the New Testament Christian. They reveal the character and nature of the Father. You see, the prophets are going to reveal the Father heart of God. They'll reveal him as disciplinarian. They'll reveal him as a grace giver. You know, even in the Old Testament, God was so patient with his people over and over again. As we read the Old Testament prophets, we're going to see that they're not just important to the Jewish people so that they can recognize Messiah. They're important to us. Why? Because they reveal the Father's heart to us. You're going to get to see, you know, who God is in the Old Testament in a lot of ways and realize that, you know, God is just and he's merciful, he's love, he's patient, he's long-suffering. All of his attributes will be revealed there. So the, the prophets are important to the Jew and the Gentile. They are very important to us as far as eschatology goes. Eschatology is the study of end times. We've been talking about the book of Revelation, talked about the Antichrist. You guys remember that? That's eschatology. So the prophets are important. Why? Because you cannot understand the book of Revelation without understanding Ezekiel and Daniel. You've got to have a grasp of those books if you're going to understand, you know, the, the, how the book of Revelation lays out and some of the symbolism. So the Old Testament prophets are not something that's, you know, just essential for the Jew, but they're essential for us. We have to understand the old to understand the new. And Ezekiel and Daniel are very important. The Christian who categorically dismisses the Old Testament is being foolish, I've heard so many Christians say, oh, that's the Old Testament. You know, that's, I, only t- I only read the New Testament. I, I preach through the, New- the Old Testament here. I preach through, uh, you know, First and Second Samuel. You guys remember that? I actually had some pushback from people who said, why are you in the Old Testament? Because it's the Bible. Right. It's quiet now. <laughs> and there's so much treasure in there. I mean, I, I just love un- unpacking it and, and just mulling over it. But don't throw the Old Testament away. And don't throw the prophets away, but Jesus is superior to the prophets. Now, verse 2 shows that there was a spiritual shift. God communicated through his prophets, then he communicates through his son. Jesus is both heir of all things and creator of all things. It says, through whom also the world was made through him. Jesus is revealed what? As creator. Jesus wasn't an afterthought in heaven. He was preexistent just like the father was. The father begot him and, and then created through him. So, you know, here's the Here's the revelation of who Jesus Christ is, trying to get them to see that he wasn't just an afterthought who showed up on the scene, but he always was. That's important for them to understand. Verse 3, Jesus reflects the image and nature of God to us, and he does it with perfection. Uh, As as I'm preaching through this, get your Bible open and follow along as I'm going here. Uh, Verse 3 says, And he is the radiance of his glory and the exact representation of his nature and upholds all things by the word of his power. When he had made purification of sins, he sat down at the right hand of of the majesty on high, having become as much better than the angels as he has inherited a more excellent name than they. So, you know, there is the the idea that Jesus was creator. He's the exact representation of God. This is important for us to understand. And not too long ago, I was talking about the fact that the disciples were like saying to Jesus, show us the Father and we'll believe. And what did Jesus say? He said, you knuckleheads. That's the new Italian version, right? The, and he, he's saying, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. 
And, and that's a pretty bold statement. But here in Hebrews, it's making it plain and clear. He is the exact perfect representation of the Father. If you've seen Jesus, you've seen the Father. Now, no one alive has seen the Father and lived. But we've seen the Son who reveals the Father to us. And this is the point he's trying to get across to the early church, particularly to the Jew. Jesus is superior to all of your cultures and customs, and he's more than enough. He's the exact representation of God. He reflects the nature of God, his radiance, his glory, his exact representation. His power is at work in the earth from the cross, and now he's seated in heaven. You see what it said there in verse 3? Anytime someone is seated, that is a sign of completion and dominion. Jesus is not running around trying to, you know, oh, I gotta, I gotta implement this cross stuff, and I gotta, oh, and the church is a mess, and you know, and Pastor Rick needs a lot of help. No, he he's sitting down. When he said it is finished, he wasn't being melodramatic. Amen. He was dead serious. You were serious about that? Yeah, I'm serious. It is finished. Wow. So Jesus is seated. Now, verse four says he's higher than the angels. This becomes important that we understand this because it becomes important when we need to refute those who worship angels or say things like, you know, Jesus was an angel. You know, Donna, you know the Jehovah's Witnesses. They, they say Jesus is Michael the archangel. Jesus is not Michael the archangel. Michael is Michael the archangel. There's passages in Scripture that talk about Michael, the archangel, and there's pa passages that talk about Jesus. You know, there were, they're two different people, and Jesus is right here in Hebrews being said that he's higher than the angels. He, he's not a promoted angel. Understand that. God created angels, but he begot his son. So we're going to dig through that a little bit, but... You know, there are groups that worship angels that have all kinds of strange beliefs. Uh, Mormons, Jehovah's Witnesses, there's so many different cults out there that, uh, you know, just mess up who Jesus is. In fact, that's the linchpin of every cult. They'll have a little bit of truth and a little bit of religion and a little bit of good works, but they're going to mess up who Jesus is. They're going to say, like, they're going to say, you know, he's Michael the Archangel, or he's, you know, he's a failed thetan, or he's, you know, he's just a prophet. The Muslims say he's just a prophet but he's more than all those things. And Hebrews is taking the time to show who he is, and it's starting off by saying he's superior to the angels. So uh, verses 5 through 13, the author of Hebrews builds a case for Jesus' supremacy over all angelic beings by noting the differences between Jesus and angels. So apparently this was a problem uh, in the early church or in the mindset of the day that, you know, they conflated uh, the angelic, creation of God with, you know, Jesus or with the Godhead. I'm not quite sure what they were all thinking, but, but Paul really takes the time here to untangle this. In verse 5, he says, uh, you know, basically, was any angel ever called the Son of God? Now, this is an amazing thing. It says here, for to which of the angels did he ever say, you are my son, today I have begotten you, and again, I will be your father to him, and he shall be a son to me. And when he again brings the firstborn into the world, he says, and let all the angels of God worship him. And, the, and of the angels, he says, who makes his angels winds and ministers in a flame of fire. So he's distinguishing between Jesus and the angels. First of all, he's saying, you know what? Did God ever say to any angel, I have begotten you? No, he only said that to his son. So he shows the difference 
in what angels do and what Jesus does by he's talking about angels being ministers and, and they, they have assignments to do. But Jesus, uh, he, he's, he has a different role. Jesus is seated as the eternal king. He has the name above every name, amen? But angels are still busy doing the bidding of God. Because they're ministering spirits. Understand that, that there is a difference in, you know, what angels do and what Jesus do. Right now, Jesus is seated at the right hand of the Father, making intercession for us. He's also built a place in the kingdom of heaven for us. You got a spot up there. It's turnkey. You're going to go up there, and you're going to have your spot that Jesus made for you, and it's going to be a blessing, and there's going to be pictures on the wall of you praying and messing up and doing things, and we're all going to have fun. And, but the angels are busy doing the bidding of God. They are ministering spirits. So he shows the difference between the role of Christ and, and the, the, the seated position of Christ and the fact that angels are, are basically, you know, they're just doing God's bidding. Verse 8. Jesus, unlike the angels, is seated on an eternal throne as king, and the angels are servants. So Jesus is king, and the angels are servants. They're not even close to being the same. Verse 9, what Jesus accomplished in the flesh on the cross has proven his eternal righteousness. He's now anointed by his heavenly Father to sit above every created thing, and that's including angels. Jesus is above every created thing, amen? He says, you have loved righteousness. What did Jesus do? He came, he, he took sin on, he broke the power of it. He walked on this earth sinless. You have loved righteousness and hated lawlessness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness above your companion. So showing the position of Christ, the supremacy of Christ. And this is what, you know, this is what is trying to be communicated here to the Jews. And we should understand it too. I mean, I think it's easy for us to get, we know Jesus is above the angels, but Hebrews is being a little painstaking with this here so that we get it. Now, verses 10 through 12 show the true nature of Christ, again, affirming that he's eternal, preexistent, he's the creator. If you look in those verses, you're going to see all of these things. Jesus was, creation was done through him. He was preexistent. He wasn't made like an angel. He always existed. Realize these attributes that are being described here are divine attributes. There are people who say, and even people who call themselves Christians that say, well, we're not sure if Jesus is God. I've, I, and I've had Christians that I was close to and stuff, and they've sat under some goofy teaching, and they're like, well, Jesus was Jesus, and he was, he was like little less than God. He was God Jr., but we're not sure if he's God. Well, these attributes that he has, of being eternal, of being preexistent, of being creator of all things, those are divine attributes. Nobody else does that. Hey, what'd you do today, Pastor Rick? I made a planet. No, I'm lucky. Yeah, I made a star today. I microwaved the hot dog. That's what I did today. You know, we, we don't, these are divine attributes. Uh, and and he, he is fully God, amen. He's absolutely God. And throughout scripture, he says he's God. But it's interesting how there, there are places where it requires a leap of faith to believe certain things. Do you ever notice some places in scripture, God, you were just like, God, can't you just say it? And he's like, I'm saying it but it's to him who has ears to hear that's going to understand it. 
And as, if, as someone who, you know, divides the word and preaches, there are places in Scripture where he lists, man, God, why didn't you just make it a little clearer? And, and it's because he wanted faith to be mixed with it to, so that people could receive the truth. So divine attributes, Jesus is exactly who the Scripture says he is. Uh, Paul is trying to get across to the Hebrew audience that Jesus is Messiah. He's God with us. Emmanuel, God with us. Verse 13 is the clincher. But to which of the angels did I ever say, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? There again, uh, showing the difference between the angels and Christ. He's seated, and and the Father says to him, sit, I'm going to make your enemies your footstool. There again, where is Jesus right now? He's seated in heaven. What's he doing? He's interceding for us. What's the Father doing? Making his enemies his footstool. You, you know, if, even if you're blind, you could see that there are enemies of the cross all in our culture. And it's getting so that it's really, at this point, the darkness and the light are facing off to the point where it's, you know, it's polarizing. The darkness is getting darker and the light is, is shining lighter. Why? Because we're at a polarizing time right now in the nations. And so understand... You know, darkness and light is going to face off. And, and what's God doing? He's separating the darkness and the light. Why? Because the, the righteous are going to be blessed and the righteous are going to be kept and the righteous are going to be caught up and taken to be with the Father. But the wicked are going to be dealt with. Now, understand that. I, I think today we see a lot of wickedness. We see a lot of uncertainty. We see a lot of lawlessness. And it's not just an anomaly, it's, it's something that God's got his hand in. Darkness and light are being separated. So you and I are going to watch God fulfill this scripture here. He's going to make Jesus' enemies his footstool. And we, the church, are going to see it with our eyes. So he's in heaven, he's seated, Father's doing what he does, he's a resting king, that means the battle is over. Jesus said it is finished, he wasn't kidding Verse 14 gives a snapshot of what angels do. Uh, And there again, we get little glimpses into these things here. And, and, you know, it's almost like they have a job description. And we're going to talk about, I gave you a little handout tonight. We're going to blast through that in just a little bit. But uh, they have job descriptions, and there are different things that they do. They're ministering spirits. They aid and protect those who belong to Christ. And and it says... here, are they not all ministering spirits sent out to render service for the sake of those who will inherit salvation? Why did God make angels? He made them to be ministering spirits. What does that mean? They work for him. What are they doing for him? They're taking care of the righteous, the believers in Jesus Christ. They are involved in the kingdom things of God concerning you and us. You know, many, many of us, maybe before we came to the Lord, had this picture of angels as, you know, little fat guys with harps floating around on clouds. We're going to take a look here that, you know, angels are uh, a very unique and, and, and highly structured part of creation. If you have your handout, I'm going to take a look at the nine different orders of angels. I thought, you know, while Paul is talking about all this stuff and really driving it home, we should understand what the scripture says about angels. So if you, you see number one there out of the nine orders is the order of the seraphim. Seraphim are the highest order of the hierarchy of angels. These angels, 
being spend their time worshiping and praising God. The prophet Isaiah vividly describes them in his vision of God. He quotes, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, high and lifted up, and his train of his robe filled the temple. Above it stood seraphim. Each one had six wings. With two, he covered his face. With two, he covered his feet. And with two, he flew. And one cried to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory, Isaiah 6, 1 through 3. So that's seraphim. And just look at the, the structure of them, six wings. You know, I mean, they're, they're unique. And you're going to see some of these, some of these th- uh, angelic beings are just, you know, we can't even understand them with our minds. But there's a picture of seraphim. They're the highest order. They're closest to the Lord. They're yelling and shouting the praises of God in the throne room of God. Let's look at number two, the cherubim. They're the second highest order of angels. The Bible depicts cherubim as powerful and majestic angelic creatures who surround God's throne. Uh, They are also depicted on the Ark of the Covenant as its guardians. God sent them to guard Eden after the expulsion of Adam and Eve, and he drove the man out. He placed on the east side of the Garden of Eden cherubim with a flaming sword flashing back and forth to guard the way to the Tree of Life. So there again, Here's another order of angels, and these guys are no joke either. They're powerful, uh, they're guardians, and God uses them for specific purposes. One of those purposes was to keep a man out of the garden once he got booted out. You don't want to mess with the cherubim or you'll get the flaming sword. The third angelic order, the ranking of angels, are called thrones. They were also known as wheels and many-eyed ones. These angels were often believed to be deployed like charioteers around the throne of God. They were described in Ezekiel 1, 13 through 19 as having four wings and four faces. Look at that, four faces. You thought a two-face was bad. (laughs) They sparkled like the color of varnished brass, and they had hands of a man under their wings. Their wings were joined one to another, and they did not turn when they traveled. They all went straight forward. They had four faces. They had the face of a man as well as three other faces on their helmets, that of a lion, an ox, and an eagle. There again in the book of Revelation, you see these things. They moved on wheels in the middle of wheels, blue and green in color. Above their heads, the likeness of the firmament, which was the color of crystal, and And this was their wings, two on each side of their bodies. The noise of their wings was like the noise of great water. So, wow, you know, what a description of an angelic being. I'm sure the words don't do it justice, but in heaven we're going to see these things, amen? So how about number four, dominions. Dominions are ranked as the fourth order of angels. They or, they, this order or guardian angel decides the success or failure of nations. Think about that. Just as there are demonic principalities and dominions over nations, you know, all of these orders here, the, the devil and the fallen angels will counterfeit those things. Understand that. So dominions, they, 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 they determine the success or failure of nations. Isn't that interesting? You know, many people just don't understand that God looks at, the, at humans and he will judge the nation. So the Bible says, blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord. Amen. And so we should want, people say, well, separation of church and state. We don't need a Christian nation. No, we need to have uh, the God of heaven be, you know, blessing our nation. Amen. So we want to be godly people. It's, you know, too many Christians have an indifference towards the secular realm and we're losing our country. 
And so here are these dominions, and they sit over nations, and they decide, you know, they decide the success or failure. Dominions have been described as wearing long gowns, reaching down to their feet, hitched with a golden belt and adorned with a green sole. They carry golden staves in the right hand and the seal of God in the left. At other times, they are said to hold an orb and a scepter. Uh, number five, the fifth ranking order of angels are virtues. Uh, maybe you've never heard of some of these before. These are interesting. They have been called the brilliant or shining ones. They were called the angels of miracles, encouragement, and blessings. They are, were particularly involved with people struggling with their faith. Virtues have been said to be the chief bestowers of grace and valor. The two angels at the ascension of Jesus were traditionally believed to be from the order of virtues. Virtues are usually represented in a group. So that's an interesting study right there in and of itself. Number six, sixth order, are powers. And there again, remember, you, you see six and seven principalities and powers. Many times the, the demonic realm has these too. And just as the angels of God are over cities and over nations, there are principalities and powers in a demonic sense that rule over certain regions. You guys know this stuff? And so when you're dealing with America, when you're dealing with Russia, when you're dealing with China, there's different demonic principalities and powers, and there's different angelic ones. So powers, the sixth rank, they have been credited as being the first order of angels created by God. They are responsible for maintaining the border between heaven and earth, acting as a sort of elite guard. They constantly watch for demonic attack. They are the major line of defense and battle during heavenly warfare. It is their duty to protect the world from the infiltration of demons. They protect our souls from these evil beings and act as ministers of God who avenge evil in the world. It was also believed that at death, the powers guide our transition to heaven. Number seven, principalities or princes. The seventh ranking order of angels. The principalities were considered to be guardians over the nations and the leaders of the world. It is believed that they are given more freedom to act than lesser angels below them. They are responsible for carrying out divine acts concerning their area of jurisdiction. It was from this order that the angel who aided David in his task slaying Goliath was thought to have come. Finally, they are given the task of managing the duties of the angels. Principalities have been described as being dressed in soldiers' uniforms with golden girdles. A golden girdle. Number eight is the one maybe we're, we're most familiar with. You know, cherubim, seraphim, archangels. Archangels are something that we heard of about the eighth-ranking order of angels. Archangel Michael is believed to be the highest-ranking warring angel in God's heavenly host. He will play a special role in the end times. For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet call of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. After that, he who is still alive and are left will be caught up together with him in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. As so will be with the Lord, and so will be with the Lord forever. As powerful as Michael is, he does keep to his proper dominion and does not overexert his authority over his adversary, Lucifer. But even the archangel Michael, when he has disputing with the devil about the body of Moses, did not dare to bring a slanderous accusation against them. He said, the Lord rebuke you. Ultimately, however, Scripture says that he will prevail over Satan. 
Archangel Gabriel is the highest ranking messenger who brought the special message to God's people in Scripture. We find him bringing messages to Daniel to reveal the future events to him. He went to Zacharias regarding the birth of John the Baptist and to Mary announcing the birth of Jesus. So you got Michael and Gabriel, two archangels that we know about. Number nine, the ninth order of angels is the guardian angel. And they are believed to be ministering angels sent forth to minister for those who will inherit salvation. Within the order of angels, only archangels only archangels and angels, the lowest category in the hierarchy, are traditionally said to interact with man and women in the course of daily life. In some cases, the angels serve only as messengers, but in others, the angels linger in visible form, taking responsibility for the well-being of individuals in trouble, guarding them from harm, offering them sustenance, or leading them out of danger. Nowadays, they are still busy ministering to us. So do you, the question, do you have a guardian angel? Yeah, you probably got a team of them. And what do they do? They're ministering spirits from God, and they are assigned to us to keep us uh, from the destruction that the enemy has planned for us. So a lot of stuff on angels there. Your eyes look glazed over. But uh, it's good for us to know these things, to study these things, to understand. And I'll tell you why. Because there's a lot of cults and there's a lot of world religions and there's a lot of, you know, new age garbage out there that, that talks about all this kind of stuff. We need to know what the Bible says, amen? amen. So we can refute lies with truth. So there's Hebrews chapter 1. Uh, it's going to be a fun study. And let me just close in prayer. Father, I just thank you tonight. For all that we studied, Lord, I pray that we would see uh, the superiority in Christ, of Christ over the prophets and the angels. Lord, you have sent us Jesus, and he is more than enough. And so I pray, Lord God, that uh, we would study Hebrews and we would understand that we have everything we need in Jesus. And we need to cast off all the distractions of this life and focus on having more of him. I ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.